So, Comrade Perez, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Really great to have you here. Uh, thanks, Oliver. Happy to be here. So, co-founder and CEO of PicoSat Systems. Can you tell me a bit about what is a PicoSat? <laughs> well, the way you said it, it's quite a lofty title, but you know, really it's a startup with two people. But uh, hey, we've got to we've got to start <laughs> from somewhere. So, uh, PicoSats are, are small satellites, uh, and what's what's happened in the last twenty years, which is which is pretty amazing, is uh, the small satellites have become a lot more common uh, in use, and the smaller something it is, the less it weighs, and then the cheaper it is to launch into space because it costs about twenty thousand US dollars a kilo to get something into space, so it's expensive. So if you can build something smaller that does the same thing as something bigger, or does something similar to something bigger, you can get into space for a cheaper price. What's also happened with small satellites over the last, say, 20 years is it's kind of followed the path of um, technology in general, like we see with the internet, like we see with mobile phones, in that the technology has become faster, uh, better, it's become cheaper, and it's become a lot more accessible. So it's the same with small satellites. In fact, they use a lot of off-the-shelf technology that uh, people use today for mobile phones, for internet, for computers, electronics, etc. So essentially, we're able to build a small satellite for a cheaper price um, using components that aren't specially researched, so they're cheaper, they're cheap to obtain. Um, and then in building something really small, you're able to then pay less for it to get into space. So essentially small satellites, the technology has evolved much like the internet and mobile phones and that it's become a lot smaller and it's accessible to the ordinary person like myself. I'm not a rocket scientist, <laughs> so I wish I was, but I'm not. To, to go ahead and build something like that and, and then potentially get it into space. Now there's one other part to this and that is how you get into space. What's changed in recent times is that there are more options to launch satellites into space, I meaning there are more rocket providers. And essentially what we do as a small satellite is we, we do a ride share. We, we said you were doing Uber, right? So someone will build a giant $100 million, half a billion dollar satellite, right? Size of a bus. It'll go on top of a, a rocket that they bought. But at the top of that rocket, there's a little bit of extra space that you can fit these small satellites on. So what the rocket provider does is they say, well, look, if you've got something small, we can uh, launch it up into space for you for a cheaper price. So we're not buying the rocket. We're just making use of something that's already there and we're paying a, a, a much lower price, uh, essentially for a service as opposed to buying the rocket. So those two things combined make, make small satellites accessible to, uh, to everyone today. And I guess from a business or a commercial perspective, uh, there are a lot of companies, uh, both startups and I guess existing companies that use small satellites to do things uh, up in space because they're just uh, they're just cheaper. Now you mentioned Pico satellites, which is what we do. Uh, the Pico satellite that we're working on is five by five by five centimeters cubed, so it's it's very small, right? Uh, and um, the typical size for a small satellite is about ten by ten by ten centimeters, and that's what they call a cubesat the evolution over the last 20 years is around these CubeSats, right? You've got this standardized 10 by 10 by 10 format, and uh, it's cheaper to, uh, as I mentioned, to, to basically build and launch into space. And then we thought, let's go 
one step smaller and then see what we can do with that. So that's probably the difference between what we're doing right now compared to other smaller satellites. And they really are tiny. So I saw a photo online that they're that size of, you know, a Rubik's cube. It, essentially. Yeah, essentially. it's hard to imagine them in, in space and, and, you know, floating around given the scale of what sort of things can you do with these, with these satellites given their size? Okay. Well, in general, with satellites, they do three things. Uh, and those three things are all for people here at Earth, right? They, they help us out. So the first thing is they take photos. Uh, and if you watch the news every night when you see the uh, weather report and the, uh, the cloud cover, uh, all those big cyclones coming in uh, from satellite imagery. The satellites do communications, so that's the second thing. So uh, chances are if you're using the internet or if you're making a phone call or sending data somewhere, it might go from a cable under the sea at some point, it might go up to satellite and then come back down and continue its journey. That's the second thing. And the third thing is location. So we all use GPS and um, it helps us get to where we're going, tell us, you know, tell us where we are. So those three things are, the, are the, probably the main things that satellites can do in space for us here on Earth. Uh, of course, you've got scientific purposes. Um, so that's just pure research, like you know, taking pictures of the sky, uh, of the stars and things like that. Primarily from a commercial perspective, we're looking at small satellites as either taking imagery from space, doing communications to and from the ground, uh, or doing some kind of location uh, services. And with our PICO satellite, the first thing that we're attempting to do with our technology demonstrator, so it's just a proof of concept to, to say that, hey, two guys working in a garage can actually do what they say they can do, is that it will take photos uh, of Australia uh, with a two megapixel camera. So there's nothing, nothing special. Your phone's got a better camera than what we're going to put into this little satellite. But the little tiny Rubik's cube sized satellite will have two megapixel camera. It'll have a little computer inside, uh, which is similar to what kids at, uh, I guess at university or at high schools use, uh, Arduino computers or Raspberry Pis. Mm -hmm. These are really simple computers. It'll have a rechargeable battery in there, a lithium battery. And we'll have a radio transceiver that will send the pictures back to earth and will also receive signals from us telling the satellite what to do. And of course, the last thing is it'll have solar panels around the outside and an antenna. So all of that in a little tiny little package, once that's in space, that will, will take photos of Australia. It'll point down when it's over Australia and hopefully capture a photo directly looking down. There's a chance that it'll be plus or minus a few degrees either way. And it'll send that back down to, to us here on Earth. And now that's going to be a, a, a great thing to achieve because not many people um, get things into space and get them to work. Space is hard, essentially. You've got to, uh, you've got to really ensure the quality of what you're doing. Because once it's up there, there's nothing, nothing you can't do. It's not like you can go and fix it. Right? Well, in general, you, you you can't. So we have to do a good job down here and get it up there. So that's that's what we're initially working on with these small uh, Pico satellite. And uh, once that's done, we'll look at maybe building a slightly bigger bigger one. But the smaller one, uh, it's only going to cost us maybe around about a hundred thousand dollars to to get to space. Now that sounds like a lot of money, but compared to the olden days, it's, it's way, way cheaper. And it's even cheaper than a, a CubeSat, which is a 10 by 10 by 10 uh, satellite format that I've mentioned before. So that's, that's our, I guess that's our immediate goal is to get that into space and yeah, and, and, and take photos. 
and then in five, 10 years, 20 years time, so what's the sort of thing you know, <laughs> you'd you love to see these things? So. Well, so it's really interesting that you say five, 10, 20 years time, because that's such a large timescale that trying to predict what the technology will be like over that period of time is, you know, is, I think it's, it's challenging. Cause if you think back yeah. 20 years ago, could we have predicted the stuff that we have today? Yeah. And we're seeing that rate of change, you know, even more so rapidly yes. you know, every day. Yeah. So, so I guess some of the things we've been looking at, uh, and NASA has done this as well, uh, is maybe send some small satellites out to deep space, to the moon, to other planets, to asteroids, uh, either on their own or as part of a bigger spacecraft that has some small satellites that pop off and go and do things. So that's looking into the crystal ball. Mm -hmm. From a commercial perspective, we're, you know, we're working hard on what kind of business model would be associated with that because there's a lot of fantastic things that have been done in space today. We think about this year's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, the first, uh, uh, first person working on the moon. Uh, you've got the Hubble Space Telescope that takes awesome pictures. You've got a couple of rovers on Mars driving around. So there's some amazing things, but all of those have been done by governments and by uh, research organisations. And they don't expect a commercial return on investment. So as a space startup, a space company, in order for us to survive into those next 5, 10, 20 years that you've, you've mentioned, we need to make sure that we've got the revenue coming in. And I know you're, you're a business uh, business and graduate as well. That means we need to have a, a great business model uh, and a great revenue uh, generation uh, capability. So that's, uh, that's probably one of the challenges of working in, in space today. But to a degree, it's no different than any other startup. But space is just a little bit harder because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's up there and uh, it's a lot of the stuff that potentially we might be able to do in the future, like say, mining for resources on asteroids or the moon or elsewhere it's, it's untested so there's a little bit more risk around that so trying to convince investors that yes this business model is a good one it requires a little bit more and i saw uh, you did a fantastic ted talk here at uwa which i highly recommend um, <laughs> everyone listening to go and check out and within that you speak a lot about how, how this new space race how it really came across to me how passionate you are about people joining the space race and getting excited about it and opportunities there. Why is it that going to space and the space race is important? You know, a lot of people would argue that we've got so much going on here on Earth uh, and challenges here. Why, why is this space race you know, important looking forward? I touched on it a little bit earlier on, but um, space race is important, or space is important in general, is because it's part of everyday life today. Uh, we rely on on space assets, so things up in space, and we rely on uh, space-related uh, things like uh, information that comes from those satellites or those assets or that are transmitted backwards and forwards. And, and modern day life wouldn't be modern day life without it. So not only do we get weather reports you know, from, uh, from the satellite imagery that shows cloud cover, but those are also used, for example, to, um, to prepare for natural disasters like cyclones. Um, we're lucky in Western Australia, we don't get too many of those, but on the East Coast in, in Queensland, um, there's, you know, that's an, a regular occurrence. So being able to, to use space imagery to see what's happening allows us here on Earth to be better prepared and, and uh, I guess essentially to save lives. 
communications, right? Now, we just take our phone out and we, you know, we'll text, we'll, uh, you know, you'll, you'll Snapchat or you'll, you'll Instagram or, or, you know, maybe in the worst case scenario, you'll actually pick up the phone and call someone. But that communication side of things has brought the world so much closer. So if you think about the last 20 years, I think in the 90s, you had those giant brick type telephones and mobile phones and to make a phone call was really expensive on a mobile. But today we, we're sending data backwards and forwards. We're, we're connecting in so many different ways. Space allows that connection to happen, especially in remote areas. Uh, so through satellite, you can uh, communicate in, in remote locations where perhaps it's a little bit more expensive to run a cable out there or to put a whole bunch of uh, antennas, to mobile phone base stations to send signals, you know, all the way out to the outback. Or if you're out in the ocean, uh, again, um, your your best chance of actually communicating is is with, uh, with with radio signals. So space allows that communications capability that we didn't have before. So again, we're able to to speak to people uh, and stay in touch with them in, in places where we couldn't before. So that's that's a big that's a big thing. Now, another thing that happens from space is GPS. And, and we rely on that all the time. All our cars have GPS today. Uh, and if you saw my TED talk, I, I mentioned um, Pokemon Go uh, yeah. in that game, which was, which was uh, which I didn't play, by the way, <laughs> but um, my, my nephews and nieces did. Yeah. And it's, you know, it was just a game that just came out of nowhere. Right? Um, but it relied on GPS to help you run around you know, whether it was Kings Park, your, your local neighborhood and find a Pokemon. And, and GPS comes from satellites. Now, just think about that. There was this, um, there was this ability to entertain people and for a company to make, uh, to generate revenue from a space service. But when you played Pokemon Go, you, don't, you didn't necessarily think about, about satellites. Now, the other thing that's probably going to really be important is using GPS for uh, self-driving cars, driverless cars. So you probably hear about Uber and Apple and all these other Tesla, all these other uh, technology companies that are experimenting with driverless cars. And one of the ways you can ensure your cars stay on the road and get to where they're going is by having accurate location information. So GPS is one of those things that will make, our, I guess, our future for driverless cars much, uh, much more closer. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that modern day life relies on when it comes to space. Uh, in fact, one more thing just popped into my mind: GPS satellites not only do they send location information, but they also send really accurate timing information. So if you want to set your watch to the correct time in your location, look at the GPS signal and it will tell you exactly what the time is. But even more important than that is those timing signals from GPS satellites are used to run all the financial transactions in our, in our economy. So banks rely on this accurate timing in order to, to do those transactions um, really well, whether it's, for example, on the stock exchange where you know, you're buying and selling you know, in milliseconds or whatever, or just in general using your ATM. So, so without those satellites, we'd have a lot harder time you know, getting money out of an ATM or, or trying to 
purchase something online. So, so space is really important. Yeah, yeah. I uh, know you're heavily involved with Space Hub um, out of Port and, and St. George's Terrace. Uh, could you speak to me about some of the other, you know, the space, you know, is, is there, um, sure, there's many others um, doing some really interesting things in that as well. Could you speak to that a little? Yeah, sure. I guess at first look, maybe a few years ago, it would look like there was not much happening in Western Australia or in Perth from a space perspective. And you think, well, it's all happening over in Adelaide, uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, you know, Canberra, all those places are doing the, uh, the great space things. But it turns out there's actually a lot that's happening in Western Australia. It's just that it was, it wasn't well known about and entities, I guess, weren't necessarily working together as part of a space ecosystem, but rather they were entities, organisations that were just there within their own little worlds. So here in, in Western Australia, so let me look at it a little bit of a broader sense. The first thing we have is the square kilometre array. So um, here at UWI, we have the, uh, we have ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. Uh, and they're working on this giant radio telescope, which is an international multi-billion dollar project. Uh, and yes, it's to look at the universe uh, with radio waves, but the, the flow on technologies that come out of that are pretty amazing. So we have the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre here in, uh, in Perth, which processes, you know, I think it's like giga terabits of information that will come from that uh, square kilometer radio telescope. And just creating that that supercomputing center and the software that will work to analyze all of the uh, the reading from the telescope, it's all new technology that's being developed here in Western Australia. So you might think, well, it's a software program, but it actually it's it's being written for a purpose related to space. Also in Western Australia, we do a lot of tracking of assets in space, so things in space, space debris. So there are a number of telescopes. Up in up near Exmouth and also just north of Perth, that actually monitor the sky and keep a track of what's going on up there. So we don't have, uh, I guess, satellites crashing into each other, or, or you know, satellites that aren't supposed to be um, in a specific location. We're able to monitor all of that from here uh, on Earth. So that's a um, that's something again that you know maybe you didn't necessarily hear about, but it's it's happening, and, and there's a lot of effort being put into that. Uh, another aspect is related to the resources industry. So uh, the mining industry and the oil and gas industry. In Western Australia, I think when it comes to resources in Australia, we have the best capability here in, in Western Australia. And um, one of the challenges of uh, extracting resources is that they're often very far away from Perth which is a good thing, I guess, right? Um, and what we're looking at doing today or what Resources World is looking at doing today is trying to um, continue to work on these uh, distant resources, but in a much more safer way, um, which requires not putting people in, in harm's way. And whether that's on a mine site, whether that's an oil rig in the middle of the ocean, um, so looking at ways of remotely controlling technology and systems. Now, you might think it doesn't sound very spacey, but uh, in fact, uh, and I'll give an example here, Woodside uh, Energy Limited, so one of our bigger oil and gas companies, has a partnership with NASA 
where NASA staff are rotating through Woodside and the innovation and robotic access technology, where potentially you'd be able to get a robot to open a valve on a on a oil rig, you know, maybe 2,000 kilometers away. Now, why is that important? Well, it turns out that uh, space stations, uh, spacecrafts, uh, robotic spacecraft that will go out into the solar system, whether it's back to the moon or to Mars or elsewhere, most of those are going to be unmanned, meaning they're going to be robots, which means you need to control them. So that's why NASA is here with with uh, working with Woodside, uh, working in this technology. So there's this remote access control technology that, um, again, you wouldn't necessarily think about, but it's a, it's a it's very important for, uh, I guess, the future of uh, controlling spacecraft where humans uh, aren't always able to go. So that's, uh, I, I guess that's some of the, the bigger areas. There are a lot of smaller companies, established companies that are doing things that are related to space. Um, communications, by the way, is another, is another big thing. There's um, a number of what they call ground stations here in Western Australia. And a ground station is basically, you know, it's a giant building with one of those big dishes um, that transmits up to the satellites and receives satellite signals. So if you've seen the movie, The Dish, and those guys running around playing cricket on that big giant curved antenna, that's what I'm talking about. So there's a number of those here in Western Australia with a number of commercial companies running those, uh, providing communications which I mentioned earlier. So again, there's there's a lot happening here. And then from a startup perspective, there's a lot of, it's starting to to grow. There are companies that are appearing, uh, have ideas that are looking to commercialize them. Uh, we're one of them. There's another one that's looking at doing debris, space debris um, mitigation. Uh, I think there's another company that's looking at uh, doing some mining on the moon and. Uh, I'm sure there are many others out there as well. So it's an exciting time in Western Australia for space. Uh, we didn't think things were happening, they are. Yeah. And what really struck me listening to your TED talk as well is you spoke about all the different areas that you could be involved with space. You know, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist, like you said, you know, there's so many different areas that, you know, and skill sets that are required for this and so many opportunities within that. Uh, yes, yes. Now that's something that as a younger person when I was studying my undergrad degree didn't really come across to me. Uh, I thought, well, I need to be some kind of engineer or, or something technical in order to, to go and be a part of the, uh, the space race. And perhaps many years ago that was the case, but today there's, there's just so many opportunities. There are a number of, I guess, successful startups, space startups in that, that business person need um, types of, of people. Um, so, you know, it, it's quite exciting when they talk about, we're we going back to the moon or we want to live on Mars, we're going to have to live in something. So, I mean, architects, right? you wouldn't necessarily think that you'd be designing something for another planet, but they've got the skill set to help do something like that. So there's, there's, there's a range of things. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's exciting times. And you, you spoke about, um, you know, university in Tainara, you did your MBA um, at UWA. Yes. And, and I believe within that you did a specialization in entrepreneurship and innovation. Have you always had that entrepreneurial spirit? You know, growing up, is it something that's always been within you or is it something you've developed along the journey? I think it's it's always been there, but it's been at the in the background. It's probably something that I thought that I wasn't ready to, to do or I needed to be very well prepared or educated 
to do. Now, that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, you're Mark Zuckerberg's that drop out of union and start up a multi-billion dollar company, right? But uh, again, for myself, that was my thinking a long time ago. So while I always wanted to maybe run my own company, it was something that I thought was, well, maybe it's something I'll do one day, but maybe it's just a little bit out of reach for me today. Now, uh, when I, so I worked overseas for about 10 years, which was great, so I was living in Europe. Uh, and I can highly recommend uh, once you graduate, if you get a chance to, to work overseas, take that opportunity because the, the cultures, the, the different working ethics, the different types of things you come across are, are pretty amazing. Plus, if you're based in Europe, it's really cheap to fly to pretty much half the world compared to, you know, flying, flying anywhere from, from Australia. But when I came back to Perth, I had transition from a technical career to a commercial career. So while I was over there, I moved away from the hands-on technical side. So I graduated with a computer science degree. And after programming, I moved into project management. So managing teams of people to, you know, to deliver technology solutions. And then I got the opportunity to become a account manager slash business development manager. And that is actually selling the solutions. So trying to understand the customer's uh, needs and then creating that solution from within what the companies I worked for had um, to provide them with that solution. So over that period of time that I was away, uh, I'd started to pick up business skills. But when I came back to Perth, I, I found that there were two things that I needed to do. One was to, um, to fill out the remaining business skills that I didn't have, because it's great that you can pick up a lot of stuff on the job, but you do need some time, some dedicated study to do so and coming from a computer science background we didn't study a lot of business when we were <laughs> when we were undergrads right so, so that was one reason uh, and the other reason was when I came back to Perth I didn't have a network so I left Perth uh, uh, when I was in a fairly junior position uh, and when I came back um, I pretty much lost lost touch with a lot of a lot of the people that I knew um, so I need to rebuild my network and having a think about where was the best place to do that? I ended up at UWA uh, Business School, and I think that was probably the, one of the best decisions I've made. The business school from a, from a network perspective, or if you don't want to use the word network, which can sound quite technical, uh, from a, a human connection perspective, <laughs> right? It's fantastic. The, the amount of successful people that have been through the business school is a huge amount. And a lot of those people maintain that connection uh, with the business school or with UWA. So you, you can often run into someone and say, oh, did you do your so-and-so at UWA? And I was like, yes. And then you've got that connection there. So there were, uh, that connection element, that human connection element was huge with UWA. And then the, the study side of things was also, was also quite good. Now, you mentioned that I specialised in entrepreneurship and innovation. When I started the MBA, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but these units, I saw these units in the, uh, in the, uh, in the course, and I thought, let me try them. Uh, and I'd always had that idea of, well, I think maybe I might want to work for myself one day. And uh, it turns out those units were awesome. Uh, so my lecturer at the time was uh, Tim Maserell, and we did an entrepreneurial unit, we did a small business unit, and we did a commercialization unit. And what was great about all of those units was we had um, guest speakers every week people who ran startups really successfully or, or not so successfully, but they came in and they spoke to us. Uh, and what they said um, gelled with the, the theory we were learning. And so we, we were hearing you know, uh, hands-on practical perspectives 
perspectives of what it was like to, to be an entrepreneur. And that really got me interested. And then when the MBA finished, I was also made redundant at the same time from, from my job at the time, which was in the oil and gas industry. I thought it was the perfect time to make use of the, uh, the knowledge and the skills I'd picked up and the connections that I picked up within the, uh, the MBA to go out and do my own thing. And that's kind of what led me to start my own company up. I think the, the MBA gave me that, uh, that new perspective and it gave me the, the initiative and it gave me the, the confidence to go out and do something on my own. Uh, so I, come, and do a, come and do your MBA at UWA if you ever get a chance. It's, it's one of the best things you can do. Yeah, that's... And I know you are also a really keen follower of design thinking and you've done a bit of studies as well, learning around that from, from IDEO, um, which I, I've learned myself and yeah. can highly recommend. But design thinking, if, you know, if you're in that innovation space at the moment, you hear it a lot um, and it's almost reached that, you know, buzzword status. So I'd love to get your insights around, you know, what is design thinking for you and, and you know, if you're working in space and technology. So it's not necessarily something that would come to mind and seem out of line with that. So, so what is it for you and why do you follow? Why do you find it's important? So my career has been based around, uh, whether I was technical or commercial, my career was always based around emerging technologies and um, understanding customer needs and then creating solutions for them using these emerging technologies. So I was always trying to solve, I guess, solve a problem um, that a customer had. And during the MBA, during the entrepreneurship and innovation specialization, we came across design thinking. That was only a, might've been a class or half a class, but we came, we came across it and I found it really interesting. Uh, and, and what I found interesting was the whole approach. Now, design thinking can also be, uh, I think they also call it human, a human centric design approach where you look at the, uh, the human Right, but uh, and, and see how you uh, create a solution for that for that human. But you can also look at it from a point of view of it as looking at looking at the user. Right. So usually, if you think about the user, then pretty much any problem you're solving in business, you're doing it for someone else. You're doing it for a user, whether that user is is a consumer or whether that user is another company that requires a solution. Um, so, you know, business to business selling, for example. So thinking about that, it was, it was, um, it was eye-opening for me because, wait a minute, I could use this design thinking techniques with, uh, with my customers, whether they were end users, you know, the, the consumers or whether they were other businesses. And design thinking, what it gets you to do is it gets you to, <laughs> to use a, a cliche term, gets you to think outside of the box. And they have this process where you diverge and you converge, right? So the idea is to come up with, once you've identified the problem, is to come up with as many solutions as you can for that problem, regardless of how out there they may be. And that's called, uh, that's called divergence. So you, you end up with multiple proposed solutions, some that are achievable, some that just seem like too far-fetched. And, and then you, uh, once you've got all of those, you then diverge, uh, you then converge and you come down to uh, hopefully what would be some um, useful uh, ideas for the solution based on the many, the many solutions that uh, ideas you came up with. And that's, I thought is quite interesting because sometimes in the technical world, when we come across a problem and I'm guilty of this, or I used to be guilty of it, as soon as I see a problem, I know the answer straight away. It's like, I can solve that without 
taking a step back and thinking about a little further. So I think design thinking gets you to take that step back, uh, expand your thinking with the user in mind, and then come, you know, and then come to, uh, come up with a solution that hopefully meets that that user's uh, requirements. And if it doesn't, you you go through this loop of just iterating. You try it again. You try it again, and you you narrow down that um, that solution. So that's that's really exciting. And then sort of continue with that iteration. So you've got this satellite now that you're looking at taking. How many iterations is it to get to this point? You know, I know you've had. A whole um, bunch of accolades recently. You got to meet um, His Royal Highness uh, <laughs> Prince Andrew when he was over uh, recently. And, and often, you know, you look at someone that's successful, you don't fully understand the journey. So, how long has this journey been for you to getting this now um, little satellite that is hopefully, you know, will be in space very soon? So, I've been working on that with the company uh, and my business partner probably for about the last two ish years officially. And the design of the satellite itself uh, has gone through a number of, I guess, iterations. So you, you try something, you think, okay, is that really the best way to do it? Uh, let's go back and change something a little and then try it again. So it's gone through a few of those processes. We did a um, zero gravity test flight with ICRA here at UWA, where they took our satellite onto a, a zero gravity plane uh, and if you look online, there's some footage of the satellite like floating in space, uh, well, in the plane, but it looked like exactly what would happen when it uh, comes off the rocket in orbit and floats away. Uh, and that, that video was really helpful because it showed how the satellite would come out of the, um, would come out of the little satellite deployer, the little box that we built, which would ultimately a version of that would go into the rocket. And just from the way that satellite came out, we thought, okay, we need to maybe tighten a few screws here. We need to move the center of gravity of the satellite to, to there. And without that iterative approach, you know, we probably wouldn't have considered that. So there've been a number of uh, iterations of, of modifying things, and I'm sure there'll still be some to come, but we're going to iron, you know, iron out and, and set the, uh, the final design, hopefully very soon. Fantastic. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people feeling really inspired um, after the conversation today, and it might be you know, someone that's just about to graduate um, from university or maybe someone that, a bit further down the track looking at getting into entrepreneurship themselves. Mm -hmm. What's one piece of advice you would give to someone that might be looking at that pathway? And what's a piece of advice you would, you know, a common piece of advice advice you've heard that you would say to maybe ignore? Okay, one piece of advice. Look, I, I have two answers for that. I think they're, they're quite important. They were important for me, so I hope they'll be important for other people. So the first one is make sure you're solving a problem. Right? So it's great to have an idea about something that you can create that you think is awesome uh, and think, okay, I'm going to go out and sell it. But if no one buys it, um, it's not going to be very successful. You're not going to generate any revenue and your company will probably just fade away. So what you really need to make sure is that you're solving a problem that exists that people want solved. So while you might have a great idea about some piece of technology or some process or some service, go and test, test the market first, test that problem, see is, is there a problem that actually needs solving, uh, then create a solution based on that problem and don't do it the other way around because you may end up with something that looks awesome that has uh, no customers like, you know, potentially like the Microsoft Zune 
MP3 player that <laughs> you know, probably not many people bought. Uh, the, other, the other good piece of advice I would say is don't wait too long if you want to start your own company up or if you want to go down the entrepreneurial path. Don't think that you need to have all that knowledge or um, experience before you actually get out there. You just get out there and do it. Um, now, of course, you know, if you've got a mortgage or a family, you know, take that into consideration, but um, don't let it hold you back and not actually you know, go and do something. If you do something sooner rather than later, chances are you'll probably be successful sooner rather than later. So I guess those are the first two bits. The advice about what to ignore, it's kind of related to the last thing that I just mentioned, uh, which was, you know, don't wait too long. Uh, sometimes in, in your head, you might be thinking, no, this is not the right time. Uh, and uh, no, I don't have the skills. Uh, and so this advice is coming from yourself, <laughs> saying to you that mm, it's not the right time for you now because it's a big risk, et cetera, et cetera. If that's the advice you're getting from yourself in your head, maybe think twice about it. Maybe, maybe get a second opinion, maybe talk to some people and, and try and see. Uh, don't, don't let that be the thing that stops you, uh, that, that only in the voice that's saying, no, I don't think you're ready. Great. And then is there any resources that helped with you in that process? Yes, I would say um, the thing that's benefited me the most is talking to other people. So talking to people in the industry. Now, whether that's the space industry or whether it's just the startup world in general, there are a lot of people out there that have gone through the process that you've gone through, whether it, it may be a different product or a service, but they've gone through that process. And the entrepreneurial process is essentially the same because you know, your, your goal is to sell something to someone talk to those people. So I've tried to talk to as many people as possible, um, just about entrepreneurship, people who have been successful and have done it, other people who are experts in their field of a specific thing, like for example, design thinking. Um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's probably the thing that I've, that's helped me the most. I try to make use of the, uh, the ecosystem, the startup ecosystem, and that is the, all the resources that are available to, um, to startups, to people that are entrepreneurial, uh, and of, of which one of those is people. But if you get yourself involved in a startup ecosystem, uh, for example, here in Perth, and I believe in Manager as well, there are co-working spaces or innovation hubs. Go and hang out there, go and join them. You're going to be uh, around people that think like you, that have done things that you, you are hoping to do. Uh, that can point you in the right direction for specific resources. And that's just amazing. If you sit on your own at home, just trying to work something out, you'll probably get there eventually. But if you take a part, uh, or you be a part of one of these ecosystems, you'll get there much faster. So uh, yeah, make use of that, talk to other people. That's great advice. Comrade, thanks so much for joining us today on the UWA Innovation Podcast. Uh, thank you, Oliver. I had a good time and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's been useful to some people. I'm sure it is. Thanks so much. Cheers.